Let me start with a question. When someone is angry with you in Philadelphia, how do you expect them to respond to you? And I ask this knowing that, at least in the sports culture of Philadelphia, Philadelphia is a little famous for a little activity known as booing. Ever know? Right? You with me? I I feel like you guys are afraid of what I'm going to say. I'm just... I'm just putting out there, like, common known uh, facts. So, for example, in this, I don't think it's fair that this still comes up, but uh, Philadelphia, as I bring it up, that Philadelphia is famous for 1968. That was a long time ago, but famous for throwing snowballs at Santa Claus at a sporting event. Did you hear about that one? Uh, my wife was at uh, a Sixers game a year and a half, maybe two years ago. And you know how they'll put up on the Jumbotron dance music and they'll put some board around it and then they'll, they'll put the, uh, the camera on different kids and have them dance and everyone will cheer. Well, they put the, the, it, my wife says it wasn't fair because one of the kids was significantly younger and significantly cuter, but they put it on one kid and he was dancing. He's a little cute guy. And they put one who was a couple years older, was a bad dancer, and everybody booed. <laughs> or another time, this is a hockey game. You know, hockey fans just in general, are a little more passionate and vocal about a lot of things than fans of other sports. I think it's true in Philadelphia as well, but uh, maybe you read about this one. Uh, two years ago, I think it was, uh, they showed on the Jumbotron a video that was in support of Fight Against Cancer. It was a Fight Against Cancer commercial. The problem was the person doing the speaking <laughs> was Sidney Crosby from Pittsburgh, and so everybody booed. So that's just... <laughs> part of who we are in Philadelphia. And I would imagine that there's times that, you know, the way you're treated in traffic or walking down the street maybe grates on you a little bit. No one likes to get booed, most people, unless you're like in the WWF and it's your job to get booed, but that's not real. Most real people don't like to get booed, and too much negativity can certainly bring anyone down. But While certainly not perfectly resembling the type of community that God hopes for, I think the way that Philadelphians respond to things that they don't like is actually closer than you think. Take Boston, for example. Anyone ever ride the T in Boston? The T is their version of SEPTA, uh, the, the trolley and buses and things like that. So if you ride the T in Boston, just imagine that you were to accidentally bump someone with your bag. What do you think might happen? Well, if you've been to Boston, you know, and I've joked with people from Boston about this, probably they wouldn't say anything at all, but cast a look in your direction that would say, how dare you hit me with your back, right? It's a different attitude than Philly where people might just say, hey, watch out. I'm sitting here. You know what I mean? There's a difference. So come to Philly. That's what you might get. But what I'm going to argue today is that Philadelphia, although certainly not in any way completely or perfectly represents more closely the hope that God has for how communities would interact much more than Boston. So there you have it, Boston. Anyone listening up north, the gauntlet is thrown. We are more like Jesus in Philadelphia than you. That's that's what I'm saying. That's what this whole sermon is about. Not exactly. But I am going to argue that there's, there's a difference. And I don't think we're perfect in Philadelphia, and I don't think booing is perfect either. But it's closer to what's healthy 
than scorn. And we're going to look at that today. So right now we're in, the, the, uh, we're in an extended series on the Ten Commandments. And this week we come to one that I actually think most of us would probably agree with all ten, but I think we all definitely would be on the same page with this one. It's thou shalt not murder. But this morning we're going to look more closely at this command and particularly at what Jesus communicates is at the heart of the command. And I think what we'll find is that the root of murder infects us all. But we'll also see how it can be overcome. So let's take a look. So the famous uh, commandment is thou shalt not murder or do not kill. Um, And I'm skipping ahead to Jesus's commentary on that commandment. This is from Matthew chapter 5. Verse, starting in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. So I'm calling this sermon Jesus' Surprising Take on Murder, not Philadelphia versus Boston. (laughs) Although that would be a good one, wouldn't it? So do not murder. All right. I think it's safe to say uh, that this is a command that we all kind of get. We get it. Don't kill anyone. Check, right? So I think it's interesting to me that Jesus would even take the time to comment on a command that I think almost everyone, if not 99.999% of all of humanity, would agree with and would not want to do. I think Jesus comments here because I think sometimes in our lives, if we think we don't do the thing, whatever a command is, or whatever something is we're trying not to do, that we have then sort of mastered that part of our lives. But what if what is at root of a command is trying to combat something harmful that goes way beyond any specific action that it prohibits? something that we can actually continue to do that's harmful to us even while we obey the command. And this is what I think is happening here. People who aren't actually killing people are in danger, but they don't see it. And this command, I think we can see, is there to protect the people who are listening and any of us and any of our friends when we're angry. Now, when we hear the command, do not murder, we probably think, that this command here is to protect those who would be murdered. Yeah? And that's certainly part of it. (laughs) I think that's a really important part of it. But that's not where Jesus focuses in his commentary. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will mean danger of the fire of hell. And he's saying, hey, Anyone, anyone listening, if you've been wronged, if you've been treated unjustly, hey, you, the guy who just got cut off in traffic, you, 
the lady who just got passed over for a promotion you deserve, you, the student who was just mistreated because of where you come from, you, the person who just got hit by someone else's bag, you are right to be angry, but you're also in danger. It's not wrong to be angry in itself. And if you've been wrong, it's actually healthy to be angry. There's something off if you're wrong and you don't feel angry. But the question is, what do you do with that anger? What happens in your life? There's an early church father named Paul who wrote letters to the churches he started. Many of them are in the Bible now as Christian scripture. And in one of those biblical letters, he says, in your anger, do not sin. That's his command. Not condemning anger as wrong or unhealthy, but what you do with it can be. And so I think for us to understand what Jesus is getting at here, it's helpful to understand the type of anger that he's pointing out. Now, when we think of anger, I think normally we think of a a temper flash of anger, you know. It's throwing your golf club in disgust or flipping someone off who cuts you off while you're driving, And although I wouldn't necessarily recommend any of those behaviors, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. There there are several words that Matthew could have used to communicate what Jesus is saying here. There's lots of words in the Greek language for anger, but he chooses a specific one. He chooses one that means a slow burn. Anger that swells up over time. Anger that turns to distaste. It's an anger that leads a person to say words like raka to another person. Raka is an Aramaic word that means you nobody, you good for nothing, or fool. The Greek word that's translated fool here is is moros, where we get the word moron, you moron, you good for nothing, you nobody. And I heard a sermon by Tim Keller once that talked about this that I thought was really helpful, and he said that The sin that Jesus warns his hearers against, that they might fall into, is the sin of scorn. Scorn is the sin that puts angry people on the brink of judgment. Or as Jesus puts it, in in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus' warning here is, beware of scorn. We don't talk about scorn a lot. Do we? I I can't remember the last conversation I had with anyone on the topic of scorn. But I feel like we feel it a lot. And I feel like right now, in this day and age, we feel it and we are encouraged to feel it more than we ever have been in my lifetime. Have you felt scornful of anyone in the last month, two months, year? Have you read any articles on Facebook that elicit just a little bit of scorn towards people from other political perspectives? Do you ever feel like scorn is just hanging in the air around you, even soaking into your soul? There's so much scorn all around us. Remember, we started in week one by saying that this series about the Ten Commandments is actually about a love letter written by God to a people that he was bringing out of slavery. And he was writing to a people that he wanted to experience a different kind of life that they'd never experienced because they'd been enslaved their whole lives. And he's giving them guidelines for that. And he's writing to a people that he wanted to experience transformation in the way that they viewed themselves, the way they viewed each other, the way they viewed God. They'd been abused. 
but he didn't want them to become abusers. And they needed to see themselves in a new way so that they wouldn't turn around and do the same thing that had been done to them to other people. But the answer, or part of the answer, was to see themselves in a new way. You know, when you come out of any type of situation, you finally get some freedom. It's so tempting to then protect yourselves by putting other people down in similar ways so that you think you can stay up. Do not murder. Thou shalt not kill. At the root of that attacks your ability to do that. It undercuts scorn. It says, I want you to see your life and the lives of those people around you on the same level as equal. Not something that you can take or discount. See, the sin of scorn, to say to someone or even just believe in your heart that they are less important than you. This is the attitude that leads to murder. And this isn't what God wanted for his people, although that's what they had experienced, being put on them. And the Ten Commandments are to help people who had known nothing but slavery view everyone in the community as equals particularly in the light of God's saving grace. I don't remember this from the first week. The first thing before God gives uh, his people the Ten Commandments, he says this, I am the God that brought you out of slavery. Grace. Therefore, list, do not murder. God's grace is meant to lead people to a new experience of community, of mutual respect and love. A life of love starts with a heart that cannot look down on other people, on anyone else. And if you read the rest of Jesus' teaching, you'll see that love is counting your needs actually and your interests as less important than the people around you and looking to lift them up even if it costs you. Scorn takes away the ability to do this. If you are feeling and acting scornfully towards someone else, you, you can't do that. They become less than you in your own mind and in your own heart. Oh, distaste for those people. How could they think that way, believe those things, do those things? Oh. It's the rolling of the eyes in your heart. It's the ugh feeling. I don't even want to be around those people. Those people us and them. And the starting point for relating to God and relating to others in a loving way is to understand we're no better than anyone else. Anyone else. And the person of faith realizes that the seeds of even the worst sins, things that we deplore, things that we scorn are in us as well. Like an acorn. Acorns grow oak trees. The whole potential of that oak tree is right there in that acorn. All the potential there is there just waiting to be watered. And you may only be angry. You may only be scornful towards another person. But that's the same root that grows into things like murder. 
And our answer is not to see ourselves as better than that. I'm better than that. But rather to know on a deep level, there but for the grace of God go I. G.K. Chesterton. Uh, he's a famous author, not so famous anymore, but there, he had his day. Um, and he was a person of faith who followed Jesus. And he wrote a series of books, detective books. And the main detective was a guy named Father Brown. And Father Brown was a priest who was also able to solve murders. Uh, that no one else could. You know, a common theme in these types of books. No one else can figure it out, but Father Brown could. And in one novel, someone asks Father Brown how he's able to solve so many cases. And this is the answer he gives. He says, it's a religious exercise for me, solving these cases. And his friends say, a religious exercise? And this is how he explains it. He says, this is what I call a religious exercise. No man's really any good till he knows how bad he is, or might be. Till he's realized exactly how much right he has to all this snobbery and sneering and talking about criminals as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away. Till he's got rid of all the dirty self-deception of talking about low types and deficient skulls. Till he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees. Till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe and sane under his own hat. And I think the thought here is that we must realize the same reason that some people want to dominate the world is the same reason that Harry wants to run the accounting department and the same reason that you and I like to look ourselves up on Google. It's self-centeredness. And the religious exercise is to remind ourselves that we are no better than anyone else, that we are in need of grace just as much as the next person, just as much as that person you blocked. And this attitude of scorn is what Jesus turned his back on and encourages his followers to do the same. It's different. I wish I could see Jesus on Facebook. What would he say? What would he do? What would he post? I think it would be different. I don't know what it would look like. I'm at a loss, but it would be different. There'd be no scorn. What would that look like? How would that feel? How would that impact people who actually paid attention? There's only one thing that Jesus is recorded as actually scorning. In Hebrews chapter 12, one of my favorite verses says this, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. You know, when we judge other people, when other people are less than us, what always happens, you cannot judge someone else without eventually the judgment turning back on yourself. It comes around. It does. Shame. That's the thing that Jesus scorns. And this one act was meant to put everything else in perspective. The one who had no sin took the sin of our scorn on his back 
that it could be done away with so that those who trust and follow could be freed from comparisons and pride and instead, instead find their worth in his love and acceptance as displayed on the cross. Those who trust him, put their faith in what he did, not being better than that, experience and live in this world of grace that scorns shame, not other people. And this is humility. Humility. And humility opens the door to the power of God in our lives. If we think we're better than that, what do we really need? We close down parts of ourselves. Access shuts off to the power of God. We're no better than anybody else. We all need grace. So grace and the love of God, apart from us being better than that, undercuts the sin of scorn in our lives. But our actions can undercut it too. So the second point here, I've sort of put this way, save your friend, save yourself. The one leads to the other. In verse 23 it says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And what strikes me about these verses, I don't know if you've noticed it, is that Jesus has quickly shifted focus. So he's not talking to the angry people here. All right? He's talking to the people that have made other people angry. If you remember your brother or sister has something against you, you've made them angry. So he's, he's talking about how to live a life of love again. And if you'll notice, scorn it has the ability to eat up a life of love, but so does indifference. And I think Jesus is saying, look, your friend is in trouble because she's angry at you. She's in danger. If you love her, do something about it. Go and try and work it out with her, or she will suffer. And beyond that, if you ignore the danger your friend is in, you'll find yourself falling into the same trap that he's fallen into. If you don't care that your friend is in trouble, if you think they're just getting what they deserve for being so angry at you, if it serves them right, who are they to be angry at you? Oh. And you see what just happens. All of a sudden, you are sitting in a place of judgment scorning someone else. Indifference turns to scorn so fast. And now you're the angry person who's in danger. And if this happens, both people end up in the position that's described in 25 and 26. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still on the way or your adversary may turn you over to the judge. You may end up in jail. And now you've gone from seeing each other as brother and sister, that's where it started, your brother or sister has a problem with you, and ended up seeing each other as adversaries, and the life of love has been eaten up, so that now there has to be a winner and a loser. And now you're asking for judgment instead of trying to avoid it. You're on your way to court, and somebody, maybe you, could end up losing their freedom. 
it's turned into a zero-sum game, which means somebody has to win, somebody has to lose. Does that sound familiar right now? Any, notice any zero-sum games in our culture? No compromise, no working together. In order for me to win, you have to lose. And Jesus says, settle on the way. Settle on the way. You have to give some. And humility here takes the form of sacrifice. Again, Jesus and the cross, they serve as the motor that makes this whole thing run. Jesus had no imperfection, yet sacrificed himself to bring peace through his grace. And if we know that we're in need of his grace, if in other words, we know that we are imperfect and need grace, how can we not offer grace to those around us who are in the same boat? And the way grace is given, the way grace is given, the way grace is given to someone else is through sacrifice. Giving something up. Letting go of some grudge. Some right that we have. Letting it go. Sacrificing. Grace is given through sacrifice. How did Jesus give grace to the world? Sorry. Sacrifice. The cross. So, in more simple, practical, I don't think we can change the world of Facebook today. We can't change Congress today. But this week, we're going to have lots of choices that we can make. So how can we live this out? What should I do? First, go to your friend. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. It's better to work out your relationships than pray for them for years. Some things you can just let go. There's another verse that says, bear with one another. But you know when there are things you can't let go. You can't sleep, you're angry. Or that you know the other person's feeling that. Go to your friend directly if you're angry at them. Or if you know they're angry with you. This is what Philly understands about direct approaches to conflict. The next two things I'm going to suggest, I don't think we get so well. <laughs> but be direct with the person. Try and work it out. Second, how should I respond? Respond with vulnerability. I don't think we in Philly get that one so easily. In Philly, I think we just give right back. Someone shoves, we shove back. Someone pushes, we push back. And that has some advantages in certain situations. I think Philly people, I think we're tough. And we don't quit. And it's normal when someone tries to point out our flaws to want to push back. Our first response is usually to be accusatory. Or what about you? Or defensive. Wait, wait, wait. Neither are helpful. And remember, the first criminal that you and I have to deal with is the one right under our own hat. When you're in conflict with someone, it's not the time to self-justify. This is the time to listen and look for any way that you've contributed or that I've contributed to the situation. And oftentimes, an apology 
for what you can own is the best first step. Doesn't mean you have to own everything. Still real and honest conversation and discussion, but both parties should be willing to own their shortcomings. You start in a humble position. I had a friend who used to say about conflict, he used to see them as, as like a smoldering fire. You know, you can grow into something bigger. And he says, when you are working on a conflict with someone, you can either bring oil or water. Bring the water. And you know what? That takes sacrifice. You start by bringing water. The other person might be bringing something else. And what's the goal? The goal is hoping for reconciliation. The goal is not to win or lose. The whole analogy, the whole thing Jesus is saying here is trying to get people not to push for judgment. Not to force things to a winner or a loser in a judgment. The goal is to save each other from judgment and to save a relationship. So settle things. Be reconciled. Let reconciliation be the goal. And the thought here is, I think, is if we are willing to lose, we all win. And this is the attitude built on the foundations of humility and sacrifice that can overcome the root of murder, which is scorn, and lead us into an experience and a fuller life of love and prove forevermore that Philly is a better place to live than Boston. Let's pray. <laughs> God, we bless the city of Boston. <laughs> May you be real and alive in all of our friends' lives there and everyone who's in church in Boston. Um, and, and anywhere else in the city, would you bless our friends, uh, the Reservoir Church and everybody in that city, and may they know your love in new ways. Uh, and for us here in, in Philly and in this room, I pray you'd help us to learn uh, not just the dangers of scorn, but uh, how to live with grace and how to offer grace to people rather than scorn them or anything else. And help, I know that to be able to offer grace uh, is usually, if not always, most important to have experienced it. Uh, and so I pray even this morning through the songs that we sing and the conversations we have and the relationships that are in this room, uh, you would just empower us to sacrifice for each other so that we can experience grace and be able to share it everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're the band, please.